John 3.16, and for many of us who are Jesus followers and Jesus worshipers, this verse uh, really sums up all that God has done for us. Uh, I have it memorized. I've said this every service. I don't mean to brag, but it's obviously the reason I'm the pastor. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved, I love that word so, God didn't just love, he so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever, whoever, how I many know we're building a community on whoever, whoever, you're welcome here, whoever, whenever, wherever, simply believes in Jesus, receives Jesus once and for all sacrifice, you will not perish. God does not want you to perish, but have eternal life. That is what we are celebrating today, that we are we are absolutely persuaded it is our gift from Jesus. We will have eternal life. Though this life is a vapor, though this life is like dust here today, gone tomorrow, it is fleeting. We believe that at the end of this life begins eternal life that only comes in Jesus. Now, this verse, John 3, 16, is so paramount and so um, foundational to our faith um, what we've been endeavoring to do is go to other chapter 3 and verse 16 passages in the Bible to help us further understand not only John 3, 16, but the implications of what Jesus has done. And I am so excited to share with you probably the other most famous 3.16, and it's 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. So go there with me. If you have a Bible, if you don't, no worries. We've got the Sky Bible for your viewing enjoyment. 1 John 3, 16, by this we know love, by this we define love, by this we know the essence of love, by this we know the highest definition of love, that he laid down his life for us, that he laid down his life for us, comma, prepare yourself, these are high standards, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. With brothers, you can absolutely include brothers and sisters. For the community of faith. For those within our community in which we worship. If he laid down his lives for, for us, we ought to lay down, by the way, I love the word are, we ought to lay down our lives. I love the community language here. John is actually writing to a church. Frankly, a church he pastors is very uh, it's, it's a multiple locations. It's very divided. John actually pastored a very uh, uh, divisive, segregated, separated church. There was a lot of problems in the church that John pastored. In fact, many historians and scholars believe that once John passed away, the church that he pastored uh, kind of uh, disintegrated and went to other communities. It was a very challenging place to be in community. And John says, together as a community, we ought to lay down our lives, our lives. Let me tell you this, and this is just, this is free material. This, we have not even begun the sermon. Um, if we're going to live a life like this, laying down, if you're going to lay down your life and I'm going to lay down my life, we need to lay down our lives. We're going to need each other to learn what it looks like and how we live a life that lays down our life. But I, can I just, a little, little side note, if you'll lay down your life and I'll lay down my life, um, we'll both end up being really encouraged. So, so as a community, one of the big ideas today is that we are going to endeavor to live out the scripture. And because Jesus has laid down his life, we're going to lay down our lives. Now, this is great news because if you brought a friend today at church, uh, the theme of today's service is death. So that's awesome. Um, you picked the perfect Sunday. Uh, and in a moment, we'll bring out um, snakes and cats, and we will sacrifice them. And um, just as a picture of what we're trying to communicate, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Oh, my word, can you imagine? Um, but like, don't imagine that. That's weird. You probably have a pet cat, and you think your cat's nice, but your cat obviously, obviously is rebellious. And uh, of all animals, cats was the one God made last and was like, ah, I don't know. But um, you know what I mean? He was like, ah. That probably wasn't necessary, <laughs> but 
<laughs> oh man, I'm allergic in case you didn't know. Highly allergic to cats and, and uh, I don't hold any offense except towards cats. That's the one thing I'm offended at in this world. So we're going to learn today how to lay down our lives. Will you join me in prayer? Jesus, thank you for uh, the moments we share. We, 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 we love you so much and just think that um, we, we can't even begin to truly, um, even with our words, describe how spectacular you are. Um, we're here today. We pray that you'd help our thoughts wander towards you. Help our thoughts focused on you. In these few minutes we share studying your story, help us to grow in faith and trust in you. We love you so much. God, I pray for anyone today who feels now offended because I offended them about their cat. I pray you'd help them also forgive and forgive their pastor. Thank you for great wisdom for Coach and Mr. John Schneider at the draft. We love who we drafted. This is so exciting. Bless our team. Help us to be the fastest, the quickest, the sharpest, the strongest, and the one that scores the most touchdowns. In Jesus' name, amen. It's important, amen. Um, have you ever had a favorite commercial? And I know that might sound odd, and of course if you're under 20, you're like, what's a commercial? Um, it's this thing that happens when you watch uh, something that's live. Not Netflix and YouTube, but it's, a, it's, it's you know, commercials. And, and I grew up and I don't know if I ever had a favorite commercial. Maybe some of the Air Jordan commercials with Mars Blackman. Those were probably my favorite commercials. But it's been years since I've had a favorite commercial. And I actually probably thought I would never have another favorite commercial. And then Snickers came out with a commercial recently that has, I, I find myself uh, tickled, frankly. Um, I can't get enough of this commercial. Every time it comes on, I, you should ask my, I'm not going to show it to you because I'd rather describe it to you. I literally just want to tell you about it. Someone uh, preached this message in LA, they're like, why don't you just show the commercial? I'm like, because you're not in charge, okay? Because um, I just want to tell you about it because I'm so excited. It's, um, I, I, I think Snickers has like an almond, Snickers almond bar. So they've put now, which is healthy, of course, they put almonds um, in their Snickers bar. I love like, I'm looking at my mom. We grew up and we didn't have like all these nutrition, like, like protein bars. Anybody remember this? And so before soccer games, my mom gave me a payday. Payday was like our protein bar. Remember? Packed with peanuts. Protein. You know, it's, just, it's just hydrogenated oils and, and all that and high fructose corn syrup. But man, help me score goals. So... But anyways, so Snickers was like a protein bar at one point, and then we got smarter and realized it's killing America. But Snickers has this commercial, and it's apparently promoting their Snickers almond bar. And oh, man. And I hope that this accent uh, in no way offends you, but, but this is just how the commercial goes. So don't blame me. Blame Snickers, okay? Um, a guy's driving the car, and his friend is riding shotgun. And the commercial opens up, and his friend looks at him, and he's driving, and it's just kind of an, a real average moment in life. And he goes, you like almonds? And his friend goes, what? You like almonds? I like almonds. And his friend goes, I like almonds? He's like, no, almonds. My girlfriend loves almonds. Everywhere I see, I see almonds. And he keeps saying almonds, almonds. And I'm watching watch this commercial, and I'm like, this is kind of odd. And then this is the part that really gets me. Okay, his friend, his friend, this is so good. I'm so excited to share this with you. His friend, this has nothing to do with my message. His friend is driving the car, the guy who says, I like almonds. And he just unbuckles his seatbelt, opens the side door, and throws himself out of the car. <laughs> and the car just keeps driving, and it like hits the curb. And the commercial ends. And... You should see my kids like, Dad, what's wrong? I'm like, rewind that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. You like almonds? I like almonds. Oh, gosh. He just throws himself out. <laughs> and I think I was, I, was like, I was like trying to figure out why I like this commercial so much. And then it dawned on me. I don't have any friends that say almonds. And frankly, I like almonds or almonds. It's not a big deal. But I have felt like that man in that driver's seat. Anybody ever been there, right? 
you have one kid, then you have two kids, then you have three kids. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Oh my gosh. You have one day of rain. You have a week of rain. You have a month of rain. <laughs> you know, I mean, I just want to just abandon ship sometimes. Have you ever been there? And that's why I think it's just therapeutic. I just rewind it. I'm like, I don't know, this man throwing himself out of the car really is therapeutic for me. Like, it's really helping me cope with whatever it is I'm facing. Life can be a lot like that. And without notice, all of a sudden you're like, I'm out. I cannot handle this anymore. Like, it's, it's too much. It's Overwhelm, and it can be something as arbitrary as a friend that's slightly annoying, the weather that's not, uh, you know, uh, participating in your plans, whatever it might be. Or it can be something very difficult. It can be a loss of a loved one. It can be a diagnosis. It can be what seems to be a pending divorce that you can't avoid, and it feels like I would just like to abandon ship. I would just like to get out of this. I don't want to face this. I don't want to deal with this. If you haven't noticed. This life is unpredictable. You're like, Judah, we know. I know. It's kind of a commentary into the obvious here, but this life's unpredictable. This life is challenging and difficult. I'm sure one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons you've uh, uh, come to this facility and this building today and joined in community is because each and every one of us need more of God. We need more help in our life. We need more understanding. We need more wisdom. And of course, one of the big ideas I hope that we all gather is that sometimes life is inexplicable. It's unexplainable. It is not fair. It is not just. It is not right. And we come to a space like this to say, God, I need your help. Help me to trust you even in the midst of this season, this season. This is not a normal season. This is not an easy season. This is not a breezy season. This is a challenging season, and everything within my humanness just wants to jump ship. Everything in my humanness just wants to abandon the situation. But I realize you, you're asking me to walk through this. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Sometimes the hardest part of that scripture is walking through. You want to get out of it. You want to escape. You want to run. How many of us have got ourselves in trouble and dabbled into sin in the, with the idea of I need to escape. I need to get out of here. I need to not face this, not deal with this, not go through this. But I believe that our our Jesus, our God, his teachings are explicit and very, very clear when it comes to challenging seasons we are to walk through. How many know we don't have to stay in it, but we can walk through it? These are challenging days, not only in our country, but in our, our world. And of course, the Bible predicted and prophesied that days such as these would come on the earth. Wars and rumors of wars and disease and pestilence and division and hatred and injustice and a lot of pain on this planet. And of course, the question we've been asking in this collection of sermons is in this unstable world, world this unpredictable life, where do you find your security? Where do you find your confidence? I dare say that if we don't find a transcendent security and confidence, like the man driving his car in the Snickers commercial, we, we actually will end up escaping. We will end up hurting ourselves and hurting others because life is too much for you to bear on your own. It's too much for you to carry all by yourself. I don't believe you were even designed to carry the pain and the problems and the challenges and the injustices of this life on your own. We, we weren't even designed for death weren't even designed for this idea that this person is gone. I had the privilege of being at Pastor Dick Iverson's funeral just a couple of days ago and was actually asked to say a few words, which I was honored, and it was at a, a, an amazing two-hour celebration of a hero, a man who believed in my mom and dad and 
My mom and dad wouldn't have came to Seattle in 1992 to start this church if it wasn't for Pastor Dick Iverson, who in 1972 believed in a really young couple that had just come from Idaho straight out of Bible college. My mom never graduated. Dad stole her out of college um, and, and, and got in their Volkswagen Carmagia and drove to Portland, Oregon in 1972. And there they met Pastor Iverson, who believed that God could do something great with their life. This church wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Pastor Iverson. At 88 years young, passed away, graduated into heaven. I'm sitting next to Pastor Frank Damasio, who's really like an, an uncle to me. And he looks at me and he goes, I just can't get my head around it. I said, around what, Pastor Frank? That Pastor Iverson's gone. I just can't get my head around it. This life is so unpredictable, so challenging. Where are you? Where am I going to find that confidence. How do we get up next morning when that person is, is gone? How do we get up next morning when that situation fell apart, that relationship no longer exists? How do we get up in the midst of pain and challenges and keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep living a life that's full of faith and the expectation of good? How do we do it? And so we're doing our best to understand what Jesus has done because I would like to announce that the transcendent truth in the universe is that there is a God, he is good, he is so good and loves you so much, he put on skin and bone and came and lived amongst us approximately 2,000 years ago and he was sinless and because he was sinless, he could pay for your sin and he could pay for my sin. So if we simply believe his once and for all sacrifice, we can be made right with God forever and ever. And so the big idea in the universe and the world today that no matter what you face, for it rains on the just and the unjust. Bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. It's the world that we live in. But for those of us that have received Jesus and believe that we are now right with God and we're forgiven forever, it is that truth that we're called to hold on to when times get tough. It's that truth that enables us to get up again and face another day, not just face another day, not just survive and get through, but face another day with the expectation that God is good and what's ahead of me is good. It's the kind of people we're supposed to be. So how are we going to do that? Well, 1 John 3 and verse 19, right after 3, 16 says, we shall know that we are of the truth, and notice, and reassure our heart before him. I love that statement, reassure our heart. That speaks of a confidence deep on the inside, an assurance on the inside. In this passage, we're told that if we will do the particular statement, the kind of the main theme, which is lay down our lives only in response to Jesus who laid down his life, if we will lay down our life, we will reassure our hearts. We will reassure our hearts. This laying down your life is, comes with a guarantee that if you will live this life of continue letting your life go to find life, you'll have a confidence and an assurance. So wherever this sermon goes now this morning, as we talk about you dying to yourself, I want you to remind yourself that the blessing that comes with laying down your life is you'll have an assurance in your heart in this life. And I don't know about you, but we have never needed assurance in our heart more than today. The Bible says we're to lay down our life. Of course, this is consistent with the teachings of Jesus. It was Jesus quoted as saying, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that is, by definition, the paradoxical teachings of Jesus, which teach us that you've got to let go to find. You've got to lose to find. Jesus taught you've got to die to live. The way up is down. The greatest is the least. The one who's in charge is the servant. The one who's most important is the one who serves. It's the teachings of Jesus, not only was it his teachings, it was his lifestyle. It was how he lived. It was how he socially interacted with people. We're here today under the premise of Jesus and his teachings. Again, I want to remind you, his teachings are you lose 
to find, you die to live. Is there a person here today that doesn't want to find life? That doesn't want to live life to the fullest? I'd like to put in front of you for your consideration the teaching of Jesus. That if you want to find your life, if you want to find that assurance, that confidence, that security, that fulfillment, that satisfaction, that you trust God in such a way that you lay down, lose your life. You die to your own plans and your own self. And in that, you will find life and life more abundantly. More abundantly. This is the teachings of Jesus. It is why John, when faced with a divided congregation and a divided church, essentially there's much more to it, but essentially John's church that he's pastoring at this point is divided amongst Jews and non-Jews. To be honest, John's greatest hurdle and challenge was a value based on ethnicity. It's amazing to me how a lot of that still hasn't changed in our world. That for John, his greatest hurdle was not actually simply trusting the sacrifice of Jesus. It was trusting someone who didn't look like you. Trusting someone who didn't have the same ethnic background as you. And yet today, when you look at the global landscape, we seem to be almost just as divided. Still craving what a heavenly family would look like. Still craving what a community could be that was not based on background, income, social status, or ethnicity, but was based on the fact that we are forgiven and we are loved and we are graced by God. So John, pleading with this congregation, he's attempting to remind them that if Jesus let his life go, and by the way, how many know nobody took Jesus' life, he laid it down of his own accord. He chose to die. He was not murdered. He chose to lay down his life. John pleading with this congregation, maybe in a way that I am called to plead with you today, that if Jesus has laid down his life for us, can we not also lay down our lives for one another? Now you have to know and I, I want to be really concentrated with the interpretation of Scripture here because if we leave it in its context, John is almost surely specifically dealing with the ethnic divide within his own church. He's actually saying probably, more specifically, he's saying the Jews and the non-Jews. If you're a Jew and you only want to lay down your life for fellow Jews, come on, no! Jesus died and laid down his life for all people, for they're all his children. And for the non-Jews that didn't want to care for the Jews in the church, he's saying you too, though you have been marginalized and overlooked, need to lay down your life for the Jews. And I wonder if that would apply to us today, that when it comes to maybe different cultures and ethnicities and backgrounds that maybe you don't understand or have been hurt by. I wonder if just maybe the application based on the context of this verse is for us today in 2018, for the people group that you are uncomfortable with, that God would say within your own community of faith, you are called not just to tolerate, you are called to lay down your life for. We are not attempting just to get along in church home. We're attempting to be the family of God. This is what God wants of us. Why? Because he laid down his life for all of us. We ought to lay down our life for one another. And I love how John gets specific because he starts first in the community. He says, let's just start with the church you're a part of. It's there we learn to lay down our lives for one another another. Well, that is not a small thing. That is not a light thing. That is not a little thing. That is a challenge that frankly can only be answered and fulfilled by the grace of God and the empowerment of the spirit of Jesus, which I believe is amongst us and upon us for all who believe and receive Jesus. I want to read this verse to you again in 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought 
to lay down our lives for the brothers and the sisters. Now, what I'd like to do for the next remaining minutes that we have is to try to make sense of this phrase, lay down our lives. What does it mean to lay down our lives? Because evidently, this is a very significant part of our lifestyle. It is supposed to typify and define how we live, not only amongst co-workers and the community and the neighborhood, but specifically as a community, we are with each other to lay down our lives. So I looked it up in the original language and I was hoping to find something different than what I actually found. In fact, it was one of those moments where you're studying your Bible and you're like, there's got to be somebody else who believes this means something else. So I looked at almost every single scholar and theologian that, that, that I love and respect and have a couple of people that help me with research. And um, unfortunately, uh, we only found one meaning. And if there was other meanings, I would go with those. But uh, lay down our lives unanimously. Scholars, theologians, writers, and thinkers believe it simply means to die. So there you have it. I can't change that. Lay down our lives means die. I looked for every other meaning, like, like have a selfless attitude. No, it means to die. It literally means to die. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, okay, lay down our lives means to die. I can't make it. It's just that's what it means. And, of course, initially we have to recognize that for some believers, literal death is what will happen. Meaning they will die for fellow believers. They will die for a fellow human. They will actually step in front of a bullet. They will Make sure that this person lives while themselves drowning. That, that, that actually is a, a real thing. That there are believers that in the past, as you read church history, who have given their actual lives for the faith and the love of Jesus. Now, for the rest of us who are still alive, it has to also have meaning, though. The only meaning cannot just be martyrdom. The only meaning cannot just mean dying instead of someone else it has to also have meaning for those of us that remain alive. What does lay down our lives mean while we're, there's still breath in our body and we have yet to transfer into eternity with God? What does it mean to lay down our lives? And of course, it still means to die. So the next question is, die to what? What do we die to? What do we die to? How do we understand? Now, when interpreting scripture and understanding scripture, context is essential. You've got to keep it where it is. And oftentimes what I'll do in trying to understand one verse is I'll look at all the verses around it. Right? When you try to understand somebody, go to a family reunion and you will. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, bro, now I know why you got that weird side, bro. I, I met your aunt. I met your uncle. I met, woo, man. Good food. Weird family. You know, like, that's what you do. You go to the cul-de-sac, you go to the community, and you look at all the brothers and sisters and uncles and aunts around the verse. Look at all the verses before and the verses after, because oftentimes, even in the immediate verses around it, the Scripture will explain itself. God will explain himself. Now, in verse 12 of 1 John chapter 3, it says... We should not be like Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were, were righteous. Now, look what it says in verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, by this we know love. And it goes on. So it becomes clear to me that the first thing for those of us that remain alive and breath in our body, we are, and I've got three points today, which is a gift to all the sequential people in the room. We're first supposed to die to hate. We're first supposed to die. I, this isn't my, this is, this, this is right there in the Bible. The word hate is used. And the story we're given is the first story of murder in the Bible. And it's, um, it's an interesting story because it escalates very fast. Cain and Abel in, in Genesis chapter 4, I believe it is, um, we're not told a lot. They're the first 
children of Adam and Eve, and um, we know that, that, that Abel works with the, the, the sheep and the animals, and, and Cain works with the ground, the fruits and vegetables, and, and they come to worship God, kind of a church service, if you will, and Abel brings the best of his herd, and Cain brings kind of the, the, the middle of the pack fruits and vegetables. God making a point says, I accept Abel because it's first and I'm first. I don't accept Cain's because it's not first and I'm first and I want what's first. It's, it's really the teaching of the first fruits that, that was actually paramount amongst the people of Israel and still speaks volumes to us today about keeping God first. Something happens in Abel's heart and it escalates very fast, excuse me, in Cain's heart toward his brother Abel. Cain now starts to despise his brother. From best we can tell, there's not a lot in this story in Genesis chapter 4, but some of the comments made in the New Testament, it is, I think, safe to say that Cain has a bad case of envy. And he doesn't like the fact that his brother is blessed, and evidently he is not. It gets so bad so fast, Cain kills his brother Abel and murders him. Now, I take that to 1 John 3.16, and I go, Lord, what are, you, <clears throat> what are you trying to say? I think one of the first observations we can make when it comes to dying to hate, when I say die to hate, most likely your mind, your emotions go to, I don't have hate in my heart. Judah, I'm not a racist. Judah, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a bigot. I don't think I hate anybody. Fair. But if you go to the story of Cain and Abel, you're going to get convicted really fast because Cain and Abel, Cain wasn't saying, Abel, I don't like you because you don't look like me. I don't like you because you're from a different continent or country or background. No, he's my brother. Notice the language. Now, John is speaking to who? The brothers and sisters in the church. And he's saying the first act of hate was what? It was jealousy. It was envy. And it is amazing to me how easy you and I slip out of the idea of hate. I'm not, I'm not a hater, man. I'm not a hater. I don't get online and tell people they're ugly and I don't like you and you should quit. And you know, I just, I'm not a hater. I'm a lover. But John says we are to die to hate in all of its sneaky forms. Like envy. Jealousy. Are you serious? They still got a job and I got laid off? John is saying that can quickly turn in to hate. And I looked up the word hate here, and it means to detest. It means to despise. Now prepare yourself for this. It means to avoid. Oh. My dad used to say, son, your heart needs to be in a place every day that you could walk into any room with any person you've ever known or ever met and you'd be able to walk up, shake their hand, say hello, and be kind. Is there anyone you're avoiding? Is there any people group that you avoid? Oh, gosh, there they are. The Bible says, no, we, we actually died to that. We actually don't get to do that anymore. We actually have relinquished the rights to harbor a detesting attitude. We are not allowed to think and hope for ill will towards people. We, of all people on the planet, as Jesus followers and God worshipers, a part of church home, we're saying collectively as a community, we die to hate. We can't do it. Not allowed. Won't tolerate it. Not in our lives, not in our family's lives. It's not who we are. We have died to hate. If you're blessed, we're blessed. Boy, that's what makes a team great, by the way. That's what makes a team great, by the way. When somebody else scores the points and you can celebrate as if you scored the points. We're a family, we're a team. We've died to individualism, which oftentimes leads to jealousy, envy, and strife, which is forms of, of hate and detesting people. 
I'm looking at this passage and I'm like, Lord, clearly I believe we're supposed to die to that attitude that, that, that absolutely consumed Cain. We've got to die to that, let that go because of what Jesus has done. And then, and then it says, verse 17, and, and, and all the smart men and women that I read who are scholars and writers, they said uh, verse 17 is, is kind of the explanation of what 1 John 3.16 says. It, it's, 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 it, it says, for instance, if anyone has the world's goods, in the church and sees his brother in the church in need, look at this, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John is saying, church, there are people here, you're closing your heart to people. We died not only to hate and that spirit that consumed Cain, but we have died to the right to turn our heart off towards people. You don't get to close your heart off. You ever been in a metropolitan center and, and, and it's like six or five or seven, like New York City or London, and everybody just pulls down their like iron curtain in front of their shop? You ever been there and they just lie? It's like, and before you know it, like you'll be in London, New York, and before you know it, like a whole street you were just on that was all busy, everything's, it's like, well, I guess this street's closed. We do that with our heart. We do it with our heart. We close our heart off from people. Nope. And we reserve the right to ignore empathy and compassion and mercy for oftentimes convenience or our personal opinions. Oh, yeah. I'm going to give you money. I know what you'll do with the money. Yeah, I worked hard for my money. All you want is handouts. The gift of suspicion. It's not a gift. A lot of us Christians have it. Have you noticed? <laughs> Someone walks up to you in church. Hey, man, I could really use some help. Okay. Talk to God. That's what was happening in John's church. He's saying, we got people hurting in the same church service. And, and you got relationship. Now, by the way, John is not saying everybody in the church knows everybody. But we're hoping that everybody knows somebody. And the somebodies you know if they're hurting and you got some extra cash, John's saying, did it ever occur to you that maybe you should help them out? We up in here singing songs about Jesus and we can't even help somebody pay their light bill? John's like, what's wrong with the church? We're supposed to die to a closed heart. Our heart now stays open. And sometimes that's really hard. That's why it says lay down our lives, our lives. Because sometimes when my heart wants to shut down, I need you to say, no, no, no. It's not shutting down. Don't put your wallet away. You're going to be a blessing. What does this mean? It means we're not supposed to be stingy. We don't get to close our heart. The server was bad. Let's get out of here. I'm not leaving a tip. No, we don't get to do that anymore. We don't get to do it anymore. We just don't. It's not okay. We're generous people. And by the way, sometimes generosity expresses itself towards other people who are mean and ugly. I'm going to bless your ugliness. You've been so mean to me today. I'm going to give you a big tip. We're generous to the core. We're not stingy. We're not exclusive. We're not the community that says, prove it. You want my respect? Earn it. It's not who we are. Did we earn Jesus' respect? Did we earn his sacrifice? Did we earn his care? Did we earn his love? No. You got my respect. You're a human being. You got my respect. While you breathe, you got my respect. No, we died to a closed heart and all of the stingy attitudes that go with that. And they've become cliches. We've actually taught our children you got you to earn respect. That's fine. Understand what you mean, but that is not the attitude that we carry, nor is it the attitude of the early church. We are called to be the kind of people, hey, maybe you don't even deserve my respect, but you got it because Jesus did the same for me. I want to bless you. Oh, there's boundaries. Some cases I want to make this clear that in, 
in, in, in some cases there is so much pain and so much hurt and abuse. I understand there are legal boundaries and sometimes you actually need to not go into a room with particular people. And I want to make that abundantly clear. And I'm speaking generally if you, if you could understand that. And I understand that sometimes even there's literally legal things that have to happen. You, you need to steer clear of certain people who have hurt you, your family, your children. I, I completely understand that. But generally speaking, I hope you hear the heart of the scripture and the heart of Jesus, that we are not to close our heart off to one another. We're to keep an open heart, for God has an open heart towards us. And, and lastly, and, and in conclusion, I'm looking at this passage and I'm seeing that hate is being addressed in my own life and I'm seeing this idea of a closed heart and I mean, if, if you don't feel challenged by this, you know, you're either Mother Teresa or um, you're really good at lying at yourself, you know, <laughs> lying to yourself. But, but like, like everyone in the room's got to feel like, whoa, I've had my bouts with envy, jealousy. I've definitely shut my heart off to certain people, individuals. This is a, it's a tall task. It is. God will enable us to do that. Number three not only are we to die to hate and die to a closed heart, but I think one of the big ideas in conclusion of this passage is we are to die to the idea of my life. This is my life. Now, I want to remind you as we conclude that remember one of the blessings and promises that come with laying down our lives is an assurance and a confidence in our heart, no matter what's going on. So remind yourself as we conclude here with some challenging comments. We are, we are to die to my life. It's my life, Judah. Nobody tells me how to live my life. This is my life, bro. I'm going to get mine while the getting's good. I can't live your life, your life, your life doesn't affect my life. I am my own man. I will not be dictated and determined by anybody else. I will not be told what to do. This is my, it's my moment. It's my time. It's my life. I'm going to do what I think's right. The Bible says for those of us that have accepted Jesus and the fact that he laid down his life for us, that we're actually to lay down that attitude that says, this is my life. In Galatians 2.20, look how it says in the message, indeed, indeed, I've been crucified with Christ. How radical is this? My ego is no longer central. Whoa. It's no longer important that I appear righteous before you or have your good opinion. I'm no longer driven to impress God. Christ lives in me. The life you see me living is not mine. It's not mine. But it is lived by faith in the Son of God. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. I have died to my life. It's not my life. And by the way, that's the key to dying to hate. That's the key to dying to a closed heart, to remind yourself he loves me and he gave himself for me. He loves me and he gave himself for me so I can give myself to others and even those I don't understand, those I don't totally connect with, I can lay down my life. And I, I end with this story and I'm, I'm done. Kylie's playing the piano softly. I raised her and she's not available to date you, sir. So, sorry, Kylie but I meant it. There's this, there's this story that happens 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus, and it's with the man Abraham. Maybe you've heard of him. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons of Father Abraham. Abraham is a nobody that God makes a father of many of nations and father of millions. And do you know the story of, of Abraham? Abraham and, and, his, and, his, and his wife Sarah, they get old in age, and age, and um, they can't have kids, and God says, I'm going to give you a kid of promise, uh, promise. And, and, and Sarah laughs, but then God says, you laughed. She says, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Okay, anyways, and God's gracious. And then he gives them this boy, Isaac. Then Isaac is everything Abraham and Sarah ever wanted. And then Genesis 22 happens where the Bible says Abraham is tested by God. And I want to remind you, the Torah and the entire Old Testament I fundamentally believe is one giant neon sign pointing us to the need, the desperation of a Messiah 
who is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to understand the Old Testament, look for Jesus. He's in the whole Old Testament. And he's here in this story. Genesis 22, a morning comes upon, the morning happens and comes upon Abraham. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, I, I, I want you to take your son, your only son, the one you love, and I want you to take him to a mountain in which I'll show you, and there you will sacrifice him to me. It's kind of an unusual story that unfolds, and if you're wondering today if God wants you to kill your children, the answer is fundamentally no. That's not the point of the story, and as the story plays out, you will see that. God does not truly want Abraham to kill his son. The story goes, he wakes up early the next morning, he gets Isaac, gets his servants, and they go. And as they're traveling, some three days later, finally God says, that's the mountain, go there. Abraham says to his servants, naturally you would imagine, say, you stay back, my son and I are going to go, we're going to go up there and worship. Listen to the words of Abraham, he says, and we, we will come back, we will come back. So Abraham believed that his son wouldn't die. They go up to this mountain and Abraham and the son of promise, and it's tough to determine, but most scholars believe Isaac's probably in his 20s, maybe late teenage. I read one scholar who believes he's probably 30, and Abraham is well advanced in years. Though he will live much longer, he is still well advanced in years. And it's on this mountain they begin to build an altar, and the scripture doesn't give us details about this, so I'd like to use our imagination. They're there on this mountain. How long does it take to build an altar? An altar, which in those days was typically about four feet, three feet, sometimes as high as five feet tall. Dirt, rocks, as they're building this altar. What's the conversation like until finally Isaac says to his dad, Dad, we got the wood. We got all the preparations. We got the night. Where is the, the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham makes a prophetic statement that would ring through the corridors of history for some 2,000 years before the fulfillment of Jesus. He says God will provide for himself the sacrifice. I just want to know how this went down. We're talking about dying to my life. Dying to this life is mine. Abraham finally comes to this moment where he's got to tell his son, you're the sacrifice. How does that happen? They're finally done building the altar, probably a little dirty, probably a little sweaty. And Isaac says, well, what do we do now, Dad? He says, well, son, um, a few days ago, God woke me up. And God told me to, to do something for him. Yeah, well, what was it, Dad? I don't know how to tell you this, son, but um, you're the sacrifice. What? You're the sacrifice. What do you mean, Dad? That's crazy. I know it's crazy, son. I believe that God's going to do a miracle. I don't understand it. I don't know what we're doing. And the Bible makes it very clear that not only did Isaac not understand it, but Abraham didn't understand it all. And I'm going to tell you something in this life. When you start following Jesus and worshiping Jesus, if you're going to prepare yourself to understand it all, you are going to be sorely disappointed because there are going to be seasons and mountains God's going to call you to climb and ask you to do things that in the moment do not even make sense. They don't add up. There's no mathematical equation that can make sense for the season you're going through. And Isaac says, are you serious? And I would like to propose that Isaac does not get on that altar because his dad forces him. How can a man advance in years force a strong young man to lay on the altar? No, I think at some point Isaac finally said, go ahead, dad. Son, go ahead. Where's the rope? Go ahead. Son, are you sure? Yeah, dad, let's obey God. Isaac gets on the altar Abraham holds up the knife or prepares himself. And immediately, God didn't want Isaac, for he would send his own son. Immediately he steps in, he goes, no, Abraham, no, 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 no. Now I know, now I know. You love me more than anything, I know, I know. And the Bible says, and, and Abraham looked, and there was a ram caught in the thicket, which of course is a picture of Jesus and the crown of thorns that was on his head, and it was a substitute, the sacrifice. And the Bible says, and they sacrificed the animal instead of Isaac, instead of Isaac, instead, that's the gospel, instead. Jesus died instead of Bill, instead of Amanda, instead of Sarah, instead of Michael. That's the story of Jesus. But can I ask you a question? How much confidence in God did Abraham and Isaac come down that mountain with? Can you imagine? They came down that mountain. You look at the life and trajectory of Isaac. Oh, he was blessed. He trusted God. God gave him provision after provision after provision. 
Well, you know what? I would like to propose it gets all the way back to trusting God in a moment to say, this isn't my life. This is about God. It's not about what I want, when I want it. I'm going to get on this altar and trust that God will give me life. That's the message of Jesus. So if you're in a season right now and it seems like the knife is lifted over your life and you're asking yourself, where is God? What's going on? Why won't he deliver? I'm telling you, God is right on time. And I say that tongue in cheek because he's right on his time. His time. Boy, can you imagine Isaac and Abraham? Isaac knew this is not my life anymore. This is not my life. My life has been offered to God. And oh, Isaac wasn't supposed to die. Jesus is to die so that we can live. But in response to what he's done, we too are to surrender. This isn't my life, sir. If God asks you to quit, you got to quit. Ma'am, if God asks you to make that sacrifice and move to that city and trust God, you got to go. Listen, if God told you to pray over your children and release them to him, if God told you to tell your 20-year-old that he has got to be the missionary God's called him to be, you got to let him go. Please hear me. You got, I'm talking to somebody. You got to let him go. You got to do what God told you to do. I know it doesn't make sense. I know you can't comprehend it. I know it's just ridiculous. But God can do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can think, imagine, or even understand or comprehend. I'm telling you, whatever you do, get on that altar and say, God, it's, it's not my life anymore. It's no longer I who live, but Christ in me. That life is the secure life. It's the confident life. Oh, man, it's the life of peace and joy that is transcendent amongst situations and circumstances. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you so much for the moments that we share as a community. God, thank you for what you're saying. Thank you for what you're doing. We trust you. We declare today church home dies to hate. Church home dies to a closed heart, and church home dies to my life. It's yours. Let us lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. We thank you for that, Lord. If you're here today and you say, Judah, I'd like to follow Jesus. I want to be a follower of Jesus. I, I want to pray for you. You know who you are? Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. On the count of three, if you want to follow Jesus and receive the forgiveness that only Jesus offers, I'm going to ask you to lift up your hand and put it right back down. You know who you are. One, God loves you. Two, you'll never be the same. Three, if that's you, all over the room, say, Judah, I receive, I receive, and I believe. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful. Anybody else? God, I thank you for every single hand raised in this room and every single heart it represents I thank you. We are saved. We are secure. We are forgiven. We are loved. And we are yours. Now, Lord, for our entire church, we again offer ourselves. And we say, Lord, not what we want, but what you want. Your kingdom come and your will be done here in and through our lives in Jesus' name. If you're able, would you, would you be willing to stand with us? And for the next few minutes, we're going to sing out what we believe to be true about our God.